This time on the Sage Sound Advice podcast, we've got something a little different for you. To celebrate International Women's Day, we are bringing you a bumper episode with three brilliant guests who have fascinating stories to tell about how they built their businesses. Sarah Turner is the co-founder of Angel Network, Angel Academy. Rashina Shah is the founder of Snacking Brand, Insane Grain. And Sarah Norford-Jones is the co-founder of Yo, a private messaging app. Thank you all for being here today. I love that you're in such different industries and are going to have such different experiences to share. Um, But I'd like to start this International Women's Day episode with a slightly devil's advocate question. Um, Sarah Turner, do we need to be having a conversation about female entrepreneurship now in 2021? Looking at the data, it feels like we do. But what is your experience as an entrepreneur and an investor? What's the state of play? What are the barriers for women? Right. Okay. Well, quite a lot of questions in there. It's a big, big topic. But um, I, you know, we say at Angel Academy, we're celebrating International Women's Day. Or we're celebrating women every day, um, not just one day of the year. I think actually female entrepreneurship is in pretty good shape. Um, 40% of UK companies now are either founded or co-founded by women. Uh, I think the challenge that we have is that um, women are disproportionately represented in the less productive sectors. So sectors that are more vulnerable to COVID, more vulnerable to recession. And what we need to do is encourage more women to set up high productivity businesses, which normally means tech and tech-enabled businesses, so software. Think Sage, for example. But you started Angel Academy because you wanted to change the system. So maybe tell us a bit about what you were doing before, because you were very successful in tech and then moved on to focus on angel investing and bringing more women into angel investing. So tell us about that journey. So I, um, I, I'd spent my career in technology, a lot of it working with startup companies, so high growth potential technology companies, introducing them to investors, helping them grow their businesses in various different ways. And then about, um, I think, nine, 10 years ago now, I started doing a bit of angel investing myself and um, quite often the only woman in the room and when women did come and present in those groups they didn't manage to kind of connect land their messages in quite the same way that their male counterparts were and it just made me think what would happen if there were more women in the room more women participating in the in this world and actually I found a statistic that said that women own 48% of the wealth in the UK so it's not lack of money that's holding us back from stepping forward as investors but actually if you look at the finance community as a whole, a bit like technology, um, women are just very underrepresented. So my experience in this world was that, you know, female founders presenting to largely male, older decision making makers weren't getting the same reception as men were, especially if they were presenting software businesses. So I really wanted to do something about it. So I started building an angel network and targeting women in particular to participate as angel investors. I love that story. And I think it's it's being the proof is in the pudding and we're seeing so many more women coming forward and investing money and a lot more women 
pitching for investment because not all companies need to raise money but it's interesting that that so many that do decide to go that route are, are kind of run by men um Rashina I'd love to bring you in here because you have followed the quintessential entrepreneur journey you were in a great job doing really well high flyer decided to jack it all in for the risky adventure of starting your own company um do you want to tell us a bit about that and also whether being a woman has been a factor in either your success or your failure in those early days um, in your in your experience? Yes, definitely. So I um, am the founder of a brand called Insane Green, as you said, Bex. Um, so my background is sort of in the corporate world. I had over five years experience at Procter & Gamble working on lots of different brands and Record Ben and it was um, that corporate environment where you already, I guess, had a big budget, lots of funding. Um, and so um, it was a real leap to kind of quit that and start my own business. And I found very early on that it was really difficult to uh, sort of get funding. Um, I knew that there were different options available to me. So things like crowdfunding and VCs. But I also had heard the stat that less than 1% of venture funding in the UK goes to female-led businesses. So naturally that was really, really daunting. And so initially I actually realized that I needed to prove the concept and I needed to prove the business before I could really start looking for VC funding. And so I, I guess um, because I knew that stat and because I was almost a little bit scared to um, start looking for uh, VC um, led funding, I started looking for kind of non-traditional routes to access funding. So initially I actually reached out um, to my Instagram followers, which sounds ridiculous. I had about a thousand followers, which was nothing. Um, and I just thought I just need to find uh, ways in which I can get around getting funding because I knew that actually it was harder for a woman to secure funding in the earlier stages. I ended up actually getting four people respond to me on Instagram and they ended up actually all being my investors, three of them men, one of them a woman. Um, which was really great and it kind of got my, the foot off the ground and um, then I was able to prove the concept and I realised that actually my experience and um, my passion for the business shone further way more than maybe people um, looking at my gender as something that ended up being a barrier. That is such an amazing story. We're going to come back to that because I know that listeners who are thinking about Roots to Funding will want to hear about this Instagram investment journey because that's that's amazing. Um, but first, Sarah Norford-Jones, I'd love to come to you. Thank you for being so patient. You are running, you are building one of the tech businesses that Sarah Turner earlier talked about being the productive businesses, the high growth businesses. You've actually gone into that sector. Talk to us about Yo and um, and your journey to starting that company. Yes, yeah, so um, it's your messaging. It stands for your eyes only. Uh, we're a private messaging platform that connects businesses with individuals. Um, and what kind of makes us different is we um, we deliver messages not just to the device but to a human being. So we use continuous facial recognition to authenticate the the person that's reading the message. So if the app doesn't see your face, then you can't see the message. Um, so uh, it's it's very um, topical at the moment. Privacy is something that you know a lot of people are talking about and a lot of people require. So uh, to Sarah Turner's point, at the moment, because of COVID and things like that, we, we kind of untouched. We're working well uh, from home and uh, kind of plowing on. Um, we started it um, a few years ago with the idea that we wanted to put uh, control back into the hands of the sender. Um, 
And that's kind of where it began. And, you know, we, we thought we wanted to start as a consumer product, but we quickly realized that it was uh, there's a huge requirement in business for a compliant messaging, instant messaging tool. Um, you know, we're all using instant messaging on a day to day. Um, and now we're using it more and more in business. So that's kind of where we saw um, an area that was it's kind of been done, but not in a compliant legal requirement kind of way. So, yeah, that's that's what we're doing. And Sarah, I'm fascinated by your journey so far because you started the business with your dad and that's already sort of an interesting power dynamic and must be fascinating when you go and you pitch or you go and you meet kind of big customers, big suppliers because there are two of you in the room. Your dad, clearly the older man. How has that affected how people treat you, if at all? Yeah, so I mean, at the beginning when I first started, we we would um, we, we did a, a fundraise, we did a family and friends and also to private investors um, and we actually raised 500,000 um, through that route. Um, I would go into meetings with him and I'd be so prepared for all of the questions and I would be, you know, pumped up, ready to kind of uh, win over investors or kind of pitch the idea. And uh, I would always get kind of glossed over um, and all the hard hitting questions would always go to my dad. And uh, um, but he, you know, he's brilliant. He actually got more angry than I would because he would just kind of bat them over to me and be like, Sarah, you take this question. So I think he's always um, been a huge advocate for making sure that our company is equal and, you know, we both answer and we, we both, he's he's given me that platform to be confident and to um, to feel like I, I'm also worthy of answering questions, you know? That's such an interesting point because... I think a lot of the time when the the issue of diversity in business is raised, the onus is sort of put on the woman, you know, you need to be more confident or you need to face your imposter syndrome. Whereas actually, sometimes it's more about having changes in the system, having the people that hold the power, being willing to give that power away. Um, Sarah Turner, do you mind if I just bring you in here? Because you you talk about um, the, the problems in the system and how those need to be addressed more than telling female entrepreneurs they need to pitch better or pitch for more money. Um, talk to me about those systemic issues and what, what are kind of the pervasive problems that maybe we're not addressing. I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, while, of course, entrepreneurs have got to pitch confidently, they've got to own the pitch and... Uh, Uh, be very assertive I think there's a lot we can do to uh, improve the environment in which they have to operate so um, you know be very conscious about improving diversity in the investor community because you know we've all got bias haven't we I think some of it is just hardwired into us and I think um, you know there's got to be a better appreciation of how women communicate and um, and and things like that so not just writing women off at the at the start of a meeting and I have literally heard you know not heard seen (laughs) seen men's eyes glaze forward when a woman comes to the the stage so uh, you know I, I do think that confidence is contextual we've got to give those speakers the confidence in order to to perform their best and you know bring, having more women in the room is just a key component of that which you know you're nodding at me i think that you you've had an experience of kind of being daunted by being the woman in the room how have you kind of dealt with that 
environment you know those environmental pressures um and would you be daunted if you were going to pitch a room full of men today was it just something that you kind of had to get over as something in your mind or has the system changed yeah i think um as uh, sarah norford jones was saying that it's really important um who you have backing you so my co-founder he's a man um, he's also a lot more experienced than me so he's had over 30 plus years in the food and drinks industry so you do sometimes wonder, is it gender or is it sort of age or um, experience? Um, but he's phenomenal. So when we do go for pitches, um, the questions are often, as as you said, um, directed towards him. But he's really great at saying, well, no, Rashina, this is, this is for you. Um, because he knows that actually maybe I'm being dismissed or I'm not being acknowledged. And I think... Um, the food and drinks industry is sort of more universal, so it's more understood by both men and women, so it's easier to grasp what we're pitching. Whereas I've spoken to other female founders who are in industries which are a bit more kind of female focused, and um, there's there's two girls in particular who I remember meeting at this pitch day, and they have a lingerie company, and all of the VCs in the room were men, and they'd uh, pitched three or four times before all to men. And they were trying to pitch lingerie and obviously these men didn't understand what they were pitching or what the problem was um, that they were trying to solve for. And so what they did is they thought, right, we need to show them exactly um, what the benefit of this product is. So they took a pair of shoes and they put it underneath these um, guys' chairs and um, they knew it was a size too small for them. And so um, at the start of the pitch, they said, OK, what we want you to do is put those shoes on. And the men said, well, this is a size too small for, for our feet. And they said, well, put them on for the duration of the pitch because that's exactly how women feel when they're wearing the wrong bra. And I thought that was just a really great way of getting around the issue of um, the fact that it was men in the room and maybe not really understanding uh, what their concept was and what their idea and what they were trying to um, solve for. Um, so I think that's really showed me that even if you feel daunted going into a pitch, if you know your business and you know that you believe in what you're selling, that will kind of shine through regardless of what gender you are, regardless of who is in the room. Yeah, that is amazing. And it does show that you can just use a bit of creative thinking to kind of overcome even a, a bias that might be so subconscious that, you know, it would be impossible to address with words. You can kind of come up with a clever way around like a hack. Sarah Turner, do you feel like you've seen some smart moves like that that have worked really well that maybe some of our listeners could learn from? Any other clever ways of getting around any subconscious bias if you do end up pitching to a room filled with the opposite gender i i think that was a great story and i think obviously um yes you you know you've got to do something to grab people's attention you know whether you're pitching to men or to women because they've got to buy buy you as a as a founder as somebody who's able to kind of surround yourself with the best talent in order to grow your your business um but what i would say is that um yes sometimes women have um have challenges kind of presenting a business that's for a female female market and convincing men that that market is big enough and interesting enough but i think the problem is even more extreme if you're a female founder presenting a software business a non-traditional um a non-traditional 
business, just because we don't have the successful role models of women building building um, scalable technology businesses. You know, all the stereotypes point to Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and people like that. So it's, you know, it's young white guys in in hoodies. So I I find the um, establishing your credibility as the female, relatively young female founder of a tech business is is quite a challenge for lots of lots of women. So you know, that is part of the reason that we're focusing our effort on on technology, because I think that's where we can help make the the greatest difference. Those businesses are just so important in terms of solving some of the challenges facing the world. And I love uh, the other Sarah's business. So cybersecurity, privacy on the Internet, a huge issue at the moment. I completely agree. In you know, I I'm I th- I think a lot of women do. They look up to other women and they think one day, oh, I would love to be like that. Or you know, they're paving the way in in the technology industry. For me, I there's not many mentors or you know inspirational women leaders doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, obviously we've heard in the news recently that Whitney um, Wolf heard she's just taken her. Her tech business, um, she IPO'd. So, you know, there is there are a few kind of nuggets out there of, you know, inspirational leaders and mentorship, but there aren't that many that actually come forward and say, you know, I would love to help you or I would love to support or, you know, even just to give advice. Um, and I, I, that's something that I definitely would like to do more of, um, you know, just to put myself out there and if there are any other women um, that are looking to kind of make their way in the in the tech industry I would love to give my support however I can because I I feel the lack of it um, for myself I think that's really important I think that's really important that we're all conscious about giving back obviously you know you're still building your business so that's got to your be your main priority but you know yes there are loads of things you can do and there are some really good networks now yeah I think we almost need to um, start looking at schoolgirls and um, influencing them right at the early stages of when they're looking at their career choices. Because I think back to when I was at school and I almost didn't know um, entrepreneurship wasn't even a route um, or an option. And I think that's slightly changing. So I had my little cousin come to me and she said, oh, I've got an essay to write about a business and can I write about your business? And she was really excited about it. So if we are... Um, kind of the the role models of the future and we want to change the thinking I think it needs to start right from the beginning not just to girls but also to men as well and showing that it's possible for everyone regardless of your gender I think that's absolutely right and and just what I was saying before about um, you know women tending to set up businesses in low productivity areas I think it's really uh, you know along with kind of raising awareness of entrepreneurship we've got to kind of encourage more people into STEM STEM training, you know, especially women, but not forgetting boys as well, because, you know, even if you don't end up in a STEM job, it's going to set you up for the future, isn't it? Because, you know, the world is all about technology, even if you're building a non-technical business. But Sarah Norford Jones, how did you, so you didn't have that many women that were inspirational figures in tech when you decided to to start your business so what was it that was different about your experiences that meant you still felt I can do it anyway um I, I read that you kind of grew up in Silicon Valley did that did that affect you did that make you feel like you had more of a more 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 faith in your abilities what what was it that persuaded you well my my background isn't in tech I I started my career in advertising and marketing um 
I've always had a passion for technology. Um, my father, who is my co-founder, he has worked in technology for the past 30 years. Um, you know, I've always been surrounded by it and I see the need for, there's, there's so much we can do with technology and there's so much requirements and stuff that we can, un, you know, un, uh, uncover. Um, so I have always wanted to kind of get involved and do something in tech. Um, the idea of Yo actually came about because um, my my dad, he he was shocked at the way the system's working at the moment where as soon as you hit send you lose control of your of your content um or your message or you know whatever it might be a document uh whether it's on email or any instant messaging platforms that we're using today he wanted to put back control into the hands of the sender and he kind of came to me and was like oh i've got this idea but i don't i don't really know how to um how to bring it together so we really worked on that together and building that idea and kind of building what it is today. Um, and I think having my background in, um, you know, design and advertising and kind of marketing, I saw where it would fit. And our expertise kind of, they really work well and complement each other. No, that sounds great. And I'd love to talk a bit about the practical side of um, overcoming that barrier, that that barrier to investment, not just the kind of throwaway tips that you see for women all the time, um, you know, but I, I mean like the things that have worked for you guys. I love that story, Rashina, about that the women who sold lingerie and they had the shoes under the chair. And I loved your story about when you had a big pitch and you were worried about kind of not being suited and booted um, in, a, in, in a room of suited and booted investors, but actually that ended up being really powerful. Can you tell us about, about that and how you made your difference work for you? Yeah, sure. So I um, have been through sort of three funding rounds. And so the first one was smaller scale, really getting the brand out off the ground, um, proving traction in the um, industry. And then uh, we wanted to secure a bit more funding at a slightly higher valuation. And then I went through angel investors um, which again was a really great experience. Um, we've got a mix of both men and women who've invested in the business. Um, and then the third round was we needed a, a bit more of a, a chunk of money. So it was a six figure investment that we were looking for. And initially I actually approached um, this this VC and I'd heard sort of things like they're very um, sort of corporate is uh, the, the word that we would always hear. It's very serious. It's not really about you as a person or your um, the founder behind the brand. It was more around what can you uh, deliver? What are the financials? What's the profitability, etc. So I went um, with my co-founder to this meeting and we sat down and the entirety of the meeting was addressed completely at my co-founder. They, no, they didn't look, look at me once and we ended up getting confirmation of the funding and actually my gut sort of said this doesn't feel right. It feels like I will sort of be dismissed and I won't actually be addressed um, when it comes to running the business and I am essentially the founder. I set up the business. My co-founder came into the business slightly later um, and I'm the day-to-day -day person who runs the business. So it really it really did feel like they weren't the right fit. So it was a difficult choice to make because obviously funding takes a lot of time in it, um, when you're setting up your business and running your business. Um, so it was a difficult choice to make, but it was definitely the right choice to make because then um, I came across a um, joint venture. So it's called Batch Ventures and they um, are a joint venture set up by a company called Mission Ventures, which is a group of phenomenal entrepreneurs who have successfully set up and exited their businesses. 
and they partnered with um, the number one food brand in the UK. So um, that's the baking company Warburton's. Um, so a real, real great um, family um, business, which is, is kind of fifth generation family business. Um, and so they formed this joint venture and they were looking for businesses and predominantly startups um, that they could get behind. And the meeting was last summer. So I um, went to this meeting in central London and I was in the waiting room and I got there early, really excited, knew all my numbers, um, knew everything off by heart. If you could ask me a question, I probably would have known the answer because I'd done all my research, really, really prepared. And I opened the door and there were six men sat around a sort of, it looked like a massive conference table, all suited and booted in their shirts and their suits. And I was in a bright orange jumper with the word insane grain across my chest. And I walked in thinking, oh gosh, what have I done? I should have put on like a suit. And for a split second, I thought, why am I wearing this? And I sat down and um, it was actually Jonathan Warburton himself who was in the meeting. Um, so Jonathan Warburton, um, he's running the business at the moment with his cousin. So it's a fifth generation business, as I said. And um, he sat right next to me and the whole meeting was about me as a person. And it wasn't around the financials. Of course, that was an element of it, but the focus was on um, why I believed in the company. And they didn't address my co-founder. They addressed me directly because they knew that I was the person who um, was sort of the face behind the brand and that was really refreshing and it showed me that they were the right partners so straight away I just felt like the right fit and I was yeah really excited to um, have them on board. So you turned down the the money that was that was a done deal because you felt that the relationship wasn't right and that they weren't respectful. That is amazing and that's such great advice because I think you're not you're not fueling a, a kind of broken system if you can make choices like that and walk away when it does feel uncomfortable. Admittedly, not everyone can be in that position, but it's amazing that, that you were and you took that brave choice. Bad investors can kill your business. You know, we always say it's a bit of a cliche, but kind of investors, it, it, it's easier to get a divorce than to get rid of bad investors. So you've absolutely got to find ones that are aligned with your business. If it starts off looking wrong in the first place, it's only going to get worse. So make sure you do you do some due diligence on your investors. You like them as people and they like you as people and they believe in you. And I, I think um, uh, Rushina's story is kind of great because you know what Warburton's are buying into is the fact that you're young and you're fresh and you're probably the opposite of what they are and and that's clearly what they need in their business so I think if you're a relatively young founder talking to older people you've you've got to make the most of that haven't you you can see something that they might not be able to see because your perspective is different so so work it you know great job <laughs> the advice that I was given actually when uh, going for investment was an investor and your relationship will be like a marriage so you've got to make sure that you get on with one another and you've also got to know that you're both reaching for the same goal at the end of the day and the same vision. Otherwise, yeah, it could be a disaster. And just back to Sarah Turner quickly on that, what are some of the questions that founders should be asking at those very initial stages that can really reveal um, the culture at the, at the investor? Are there any probing questions that you find kind of unearth quite a bit um well just just ask about themselves you should speak to other businesses that they've invested in so you know uh, uh, ask them to introduce you to to other founders they've invested in so you can understand the working relationship i mean uh, you know obviously it it 
depends. I think this is, you know, the larger the stake of the company the investor is going to own, the more important this due diligence and the alignment is. If it's somebody making a relatively small investment who isn't going to have a huge amount of influence, it's probably more just some personal questions to make sure that you're personally aligned. But if it's a a big institution that's putting in a big chunk of money and therefore will own quite a chunk of your your business and will possibly have a place on your board, um, you've really got to understand that that they're aligned with their, with with you. So who are they as individuals? Who are they as a business? Who else have they invested in? How have they supported those businesses? Um, and, you know, read the small print, make sure you know all the terms and conditions, the fees, if there are any. It's important to be thorough. And maybe try and speak to some of the investee companies that they haven't introduced you to. So you're getting not just the creme de la creme of relationships, but also the ones that maybe they didn't put forward. So you get a bit more of a balanced view. Yeah, I mean, you, you yes, yes. I, I think it's a good idea to speak to as many people within reason as possible. But, you know, not all investments go well, with the best will in the world, a large number of them will go wrong. This is a high risk strategy. So I would seek out the people for whom the relationship has worked in particular, rather than the ones where it hasn't, because I think the investors will be trying to reproduce that rather than the um, the failures, if you see what I mean. I was just going to say that women, um, I guess, launch businesses with, I think it's 53% less capital on average than men. And um, when I was reading through the Rose Review and it said that uh, 40% of the women who were interviewed said that they um, don't believe that they're going to actually get funding. So they don't even try. And I think that's where um, it's up to us as people who've done it before to really educate those uh, founders and those people who are starting up to show that actually there's lots of different funding routes available to them. So it's not necessarily just the VC option, but also there's crowdfunding, um, there's angel investors, there's family and friends, there's different routes that people can go through. And I think that the um, SEIS uh, relief also really helps because... Again, I speak to lots of female founders sort of at the very early stages of the business and they're not aware of SEIS, which actually makes um, it less of a risk for angel investors to get involved, which then means that we're more likely to secure investment at the um, earlier stages of the business. So I think it's really up to us, um, for those who have done it before, to show and mentor and guide those um, entrepreneurs on how to do that. There's um, the Virgin Startup um, Step Up Programme and Virgin Startup are just brilliant at really getting the businesses that haven't really fully taken off the ground and communicating um, the different funding options and routes available to them. Yeah, I, I think some good early funding options as well. There are loads of grants around. So Innovate UK, if you're doing um, technology, um, yeah, Vir- Virgin Startups, they're one of the partners that issue startup loans. So they're relatively low interest rates for um, for early stage companies. But I think before you go and speak to investors, so most investors who don't already know you as people will expect to see what you know what we call traction some progress in the business and I always advise founders get as far as you can under your own steam because then your negotiating position with investors will be much better they'll they'll be more attracted to your business because there's more evidence that you can show them that you're an investable and potentially high growth business um, and you'll get better terms. Something um, to mention as well is uh, accelerator programs or there's a lot of kind of pitch practice events as well. Um, 
uh, Yo, um, my company, we got um, invited to take part um, of Cylon, which is a, an, a cybersecurity um, accelerator. And we did that uh, in 2019. And the value that we got from that was extraordinary because not only did they help us really hone our pitch and how to present and what investors are looking out for and you know putting us in front and actually giving us the access to those investors but it also um it it gave us a kind of a sounding board we got to bounce ideas off and actually from that experience we completely pivoted our business we 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 were you know setting out to kind of be a consumer focused product um and because of that experience that we had we actually realized we're like hang on a second there's a lot of need in the business uh bit for businesses so we actually pivoted during that accelerator um you know they helped us with our pitch presentations and um they, they were just great so if my advice is as well apply to accelerators it's free to apply you know um and also there's a lot of pitch practice events. Um, I've done it before. Um, it is a bit nerve wracking standing up in front of a huge crowd of people and, and pitching, but it does give you that kind of boost and think, you know, actually I got this, I can go into a room and do this, you know? And that's the thing about pitches, right? You have to do it over and over again to get better. You can't actually learn it on your own, doing it to the mirror. It has to be something that's done live with questions thrown at you that you maybe hadn't prepared for how you deal with them. Did you find that it was that it was that live element that, that in the pitch, in the heat of the moment that really honed your proposal? Yeah, for sure. And and doing it over and over again, so to different people. So you get different questions and then you think, oh, I've got to go back and I've got to add another page to my pitch presentation because I haven't I haven't mentioned this or I haven't said anything about that. Um, so yeah, it does. Practice makes perfect. We're just going to stop there for a moment to hear from a Sage Accounting customer. My name's Sam Mitchum and I run a small accountancy practice on the Lancashire-Yorkshire border called SJCM Accountancy. My advice for getting year one in business right is always be realistic with your personal finances and how they will tally with your business. Know how much money you need to take out of your business from day one to avoid cash flow issues. Always have a separate business bank account and keep up to date with bookkeeping records by using elements such as bank feeds within your bookkeeping software. Without the basic records, you will not succeed with cash flow management. To find out more about Sage Accounting, go to sage.com. Now, back to the show. Rashina, do you mind if um, I'm going to let you get, say your point, but then I'd love to hear about the Instagram funding and what came of it, how the idea came to you, how quickly the response came through, but but do make your point first. I was just going to say the, the pitch events and the accelerators are really great uh, for also networking and having a team of other um, individuals, females kind of supporting you and ha- feeling like you're part of a wider network because I guess when you're running your own business, Often it's just a sole founder or a co-founder, so you don't really have that sort of network behind you. I think generally also, um, when you're looking for investment, you have to try and decide um, what you want to value the company at. And you hear stats um, like women generally um, devalue themselves or value themselves less than men or their companies less than men. Um, So it's really good to have a network behind you to understand what other people are valuing their companies at. And you hear the phrase, um, say what you're worth and add tax to it. So I always kind of go a bit higher and then negotiate it down if that's Mm. the case. But I think um, if us as female founders who've done it before can show other uh, female founders, look, we've raised at this valuation, it is possible. Um, I think it then sets a really great example for others. Um, 
And then Bex, to your point about the um, Instagram um, route. So um, the reason I decided to just reach out to Instagram was one, I kind of was at the really early stages of the business and I didn't really um, know what routes were available to me. So I'd heard of things like VCs, but I thought, okay, well, it's too early. I'm not ready to kind of share um, my business plan with them. And um, I'd heard of things like going through family and friends and uh, crowdfunding. And I I think I was, it was one weekend and I just had this real passion for setting up the business and really um, progressing it. We'd um, set up an, under a different brand name originally um, just to put the product in the market, just to start getting traction. And um, I realised I had put in all my savings from my time um, uh, working at P&G and I knew that it was going to come to an end at some point and what I didn't want to do is um, have a really great idea have um, a business plan and have my cash flow forecast set but knew that I wasn't going to be able to then run it if I didn't have enough uh, money in the bank account so I um, randomly just put the post on Instagram story so I just said this is my business idea looking for investment is anyone interested and I had um, a couple of sort of old university friends who I hadn't spoken to in about 10 years reach out to me and said, we followed your journey and it sounds really great. Um, what sense over your business plan? We're really interested. Two of them are actually already um, investment managers. So they had experience in investing in other companies. Um, and then the fourth person was someone I didn't know at all. Um, I'm actually, to this day, I'm not entirely sure how they found my Instagram page or how they decided to invest. I probably should ask them, but... They, yeah, again, I um, shared my business plan with them and we had a meeting and we kind of went through the whole business idea and they just loved the concept and decided to invest. So it just shows there are different unique ways in which you can raise funding. It doesn't have to go through the sort of traditional routes. I'm actually, um, we're just about, we're, we're doing a seed round at the moment um, with Yo and we're going to be doing a crowdfunding that launches in March, um, the beginning of March. So there are definitely different routes. Um, we're, we're doing a crowdfund, not just to raise investment, but we're doing it also to kind of build a community. So with crowdfunding, you do get that side of things as well. You get people that believe in what you're doing and want to be part of it. Um, so it's a great route to consider. Sarah, so what do you think of raising finance via social media? That's very new and exciting. Um, what are the other creative ways that you've seen founders access? And are there any sort of caveats that you would like to interject? I th- I think you you should explore, you absolutely should explore every avenue. Um, raising investment you know, it, it isn't easy for anyone unless they just happy happen to speak to the first investor straight out of the traps. But you know, it is a it is it is a process, and it's a uh, you've got to be systematic. You've got to speak to a lot of people. You've got to target yourself carefully at the people who are likely to invest in you. I think social media is a great idea if you've got a decent number of followers because you can start the conversation there and you can perhaps reach people that you you wouldn't have thought to to ask but you know uh if you happen to know individual angel investors you should speak to them if you don't know any angels there are hundreds of angel networks in the uk so approach them most of them are listed on the uk business angels association website um the crowdfunding platforms i mean you know google's your friend here you've just got to do lots and lots of searching find you know draw up long lists of people to to contact and 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 treat it as a project um 
I think anything you can do to raise your profile in the media and on social media as you go along, and then you might have some investors coming towards you as well, which is which is great. But I think everyone will tell you that it's actually a long, a long hard slog to find the right ones. And you know, there's a lot of ugly, ugly frogs you need to talk to before you find your uh, your princess charming. And you have to get used to hearing the word no, and a lot of people. You know, you you do develop a thick skin because you do get a lot of people questioning and saying, no, it's not going to work or I don't see it. I don't understand it. And, you know, at that point, you just have to say thank you very much for your feedback and, you know, move on to the next. And you can't let it drag you down because there is a lot of no's, unfortunately. And, and actually, no is good. Um, it's better to get a quick no than people who drag you along and, you know, say, oh, we're looking for this and this. And you, you know, you spend a lot of time trying to <laughs> trying to convince them. Um, uh, so a definite no is um, it can save you a lot of time. Um, and, and for a lot of people, it, you'll you'll just be too early or you won't be a good fit. But, you know, try and get feedback from these people so that, you know, next time, next person you approach, you can be even better. I was going to say just to do your homework as well because there's no point having an hour long meeting with an investor or a potential investor if they're not an early stage investor and they only focus on, you know, a different sector or or a different stage business. You know, that's where doing your homework is always key because you you then can before you even get into a meeting, you know whether or not it's going to be a waste of time because you know if that's their focus is something that you're you're offering. Yeah, I think with my um, Instagram example, it was um, sort of more of a unique one, which I guess I got slightly lucky because I also have had experiences where it hasn't been so easy. So when I first started raising, um, I guess there's a difference between value adding angel investors and angel investors who sort of just put the funding in and are silent. So they're just silent uh, partners. And for me, um, initially I wanted value adding investors because I knew that I'd had corporate experience in the industry that I was in, but I didn't necessarily have experience of actually setting up my own business. So initially it wasn't around silent investors, it was about getting the best investors that I could find in the category, in the industry, who could knock down doors and could really um, support the business. So initially I had a meeting with one investor in particular, and it took me three years to get him on board. Um, so he initially didn't say no, he kind of said, I'm interested, it's a maybe, um, just keep me updated. And every so often, whenever I sent out my kind of share reports and all, all of my business updates, I would copy him in and say, look at this great news, etc. And um, then three years later, um, we had traction, we had revenue, we were really starting to progress in the, the industry. And that's when he came in, obviously at a higher, higher valuation. So he really should have come in at the earlier stages. Um, but it shows that there's some examples where, yes, you can put something on Instagram and within a few uh, weeks you can get some investment and some take a lot, lot longer. So, yeah, sometimes it's not as easy as it does um, sound. And when it comes to asking for money, this may be a really stupid question, but how on earth do you figure out how much you need and over what time frame you're trying to raise that investment for? How did you guys do it? And and, and 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 I love the point about, you know, women undervaluing themselves often, not to make gross generalizations, but but then how you you add a kind of 
fit ambition to that number or do you need to? Talk to me about your experiences. Um, For me, it was just about putting a solid cash flow forecast together. So really, I guess, um, determining the strategy up front and really planning for it. So instead of just saying, finger in the air, I'll need about 100,000, 250,000. It was all around actually saying, where do I want to take the business? Where do I see the business going in the next three to five years? Based on that, if I want to hit these revenue targets, based on the sales that I want to achieve, the retailers we want to secure, um, the marketing spend that we need to put in, the promotional plan, the operational costs, all of those things factored in, um, then help us to build a really strong uh, cash flow forecast, which um, is going to be as accurate as possible, because obviously it's hard to put a cash flow forecast together when you've never done it before. Um, which is again why having value adding investors in the industry really, really helped because obviously they've done it before. So my co-founder, he actually ran a snacks company just before he joined me. He exited the business um, a few months before I kind of got him into the business. So he had that experience of, right, this is what we've done. But just as, just because it worked for that business doesn't necessarily mean it made sense for my business. So I took that as a basis, then put a, a solid cash flow forecast together knew my numbers sort of inside out because again you're going to be grilled on those uh, things when you get um, in front of the investors but that then helped me to determine what funding the amount that we needed and then in terms of the valuation it was all about uh, what are other brands in the category at the same stage doing as me so I looked at that but I sort of I looked at it with caution because again if um, our brand is unique and our business is unique, we should be um, having a unique valuation. So it's not just around what we can achieve in terms of revenue and profit and all of those really great things, but also the founder, our experience, the support behind the business, um, the unique white space opportunity that we've identified. So I kind of bumped up the valuation um, as a result of that, which I guess um, was great because it meant that we we had some negotiation room when we talked to investors, but also because um, the investors believed in that valuation after I justified it, we ended up securing it. So yeah, I had my co-founder a couple of times looking at me being like, how did how did you get that valuation? And I just said, well, if you don't ask, you don't get. So, <laughs> so we went for it anyway. And Sarah, what was your, what was your approach with Yo? Because it's slightly different with tech because it's not like you've got a manufacturing basis to, to kind of pull well, in. Well, our, our majority of our costs are obviously on um, development, um, developing the product. You know, developers and really good developers, they do come with a, a price tag. So that's kind of where we've forecasted. Um, at the moment, we're running a very linear, tight team. We are very small, but to, to order to be able to grow and to kind of launch the way that we want to, um, we do need to kind of bolster up that team. So that's where we start looking. And you can just look at salaries of, of developers um, and what they cost to kind of start building your cash flow forecast um, and then projecting. And just to mention, you know, raising funds takes time. So you need to give yourself um, a good runway um, before you kind of run out of cash, knowing that it could take up to sometimes six to eight months to before you even um, you know raise the investment that you want. Um, so it's it's good to kind of plan ahead um, for that. Um, and in terms of um, valuating our business, again to Rashina's point, um, kind of look at what others are doing out there and try and go as long as you can without taking on funds because the further you get in the business like right now we're actually um we've got two paid pilots uh with businesses 
um, that we're running. And that just proves your market product market fit. So it's proving to investors that there is a need, there are people that want it, and there are people that are actually going to pay for it. So um, yeah, we're, we're, you have to kind of time the investor journey to to what you've got going on in the business to make yourselves more appealing and more valuable to the investor. From an investor's point of view, I mean, there's a huge amount of emphasis uh, put on the pitch and getting the pitch right and polished, but you are absolutely wasting your time if there isn't a fairly detailed plan behind that, especially around the financials. What What's your... How much money are you going to need in order to get to this point, which is possibly the time of your next fundraise or you'll be um, you'll be you'll be profitable by then. So you won't need to raise more money. So, um, you know, as investors, we'll be expecting to see some quite detailed thinking about, you know, who are the people you're going to need? Uh, yes. Uh, financial forecasts, also a marketing plan. Uh, building the technology. What is what's the roadmap for that? So there's a whole lot of of information that needs to go in there. And um, valuation is a, it's a really tricky one. At early stage, it's, it's, it's more art and experience than it is science, because we're not looking at companies that have got predictable revenues, and we can just make a multiple of that. So it is all based on these forecasts, which, you know, best will in the world are our best guesses. Um, So I, I think, you know, yes, looking at what companies around you have asked for, companies at a particular similar sort of stage, companies from this market rather than the US, um, by all means be bullish. But if you go in with something outrageous, you run the risk of just not being credible. So people will say no straight away. But then the other factor about valuation is that it does set expectations for where you'll be pricing yourself in the next round. So if you're setting a high valuation, you have got to be super confident of being able to make yourself worth that valuation and more in the next round. Otherwise, you are just storing up certain problems for yourself. So, you know, it is quite a, a um, it's quite a detailed exercise, thinking exercise that you've got to go through. I think you've both made a really good point on um, delaying the funding for as soon as, as soon as much as you can, because um, as you said, you can uh, you can value the company higher, obviously, if you've got more traction and um, you've proven the concept in the market. Mm-hmm. And there's ways in which you can um, get funding or kind of uniquely um, find ways in which you can get money in the business without have to, having to actually get go to external sources. So things like R&D tax relief, uh, which I didn't have a clue about when I started my business, which um, you realise actually it works in a lot of industries. So food and drink, um, the category that I'm in, um, a lot of people think, oh, well, R&D doesn't apply to that and we can't get tax relief based on that. But um, at the really early stages of my business, when we weren't even making much money, um, I ended up getting a relief uh, back for about ten thousand pounds, which is a lot of money when at the early stages of the business. So it shows that there are other options available to you before you actually start to um, raise funds. Yeah, and 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 customer revenue, fantastic. Even relatively small amounts, because it starts to prove that people are willing to pay for it. And even if you're building a technology product and you have to go through various trials, you might be able to get some money. You might be able to get the customers to pay for doing the trial, at least your time doing the implementation. So. So, um, you know, 
get, get you know that's that's non-dilutive funding it's the best source of funding if you can get money from your customers the the other piece of advice that i got early at the beginning of my business um was to put your um, the money we put in as savings into the business under a director's loan and that might sound really obvious but um I think a lot of um, entrepreneurs, and I actually did this at the beginning, start spending money in the business and then not realising what they're necessarily spending on and not putting under director's loan, which means that you can't then eventually take that back if it's not all written down and all properly um, documented. So I think it's really important for those who are setting up now and starting and getting off the ground to put their savings um, into the business, but as a director's loan, in case that's helpful for anyone out there. That is so useful. And I love that these are all things that you figured out through the course of building your businesses and possibly wish you'd done earlier. That point about the tax credits. I mean, how I don't I'm not an expert on this, but can you backdate it? And if so, for how long if we've got founders who thought, oh, I haven't done that. But actually, I spent all that money a couple of years ago. Can they still claim? If I'm not mistaken, I think it's three years that you can backdate it. Um, and your accountants should be able to help you. So it's sort of an official report that you put together. Um, if anyone needs uh, any guidance I'm happy to um, help so yeah anyone can drop me a message on LinkedIn and I can definitely help there. Ah, Amazing thanks Rashina and I'd like to talk a bit about we've talked quite a bit about investment and finance and I think it's a really big and important topic but some of the other things that contribute to the success of people building businesses um, I hear a lot these days about having a tribe and having people who are at the same stage as you doing the similar thing and powering each other through that that experience um Rishina, I know that you have had a kind of buddy in crime in building business crime can you talk to me a bit about that and how that affected your ability to kind of be confident or grow faster Going from a corporate world where you have lots of people around you, you've got a team, you have a routine, um, it is a massive leap when you then go into the, the world of uh, starting up your own business and you realise it's you that's really pushing the business and it's just you on a day-to-day basis. So for me, it was really important um, to be surrounded by other uh, people, women, uh, men who had um, set up their own businesses from scratch. And the food and drinks industry is really, really great because... Um, they are really supportive, they answer your questions and there's so many mentors um, in, in the industry. And um, I also kind of started thinking about other entrepreneurs outside of my industry so I could kind of get a fresh take on um, entrepreneurialism and, um, and different business ideas. And um, initially I started going into a, a co-working space, so it was the Google a startup space which was uh, free of charge for anyone to go in and I start talking to people around there. And I also had a friend um, called Lisa Dull, and I know Lisa's been on one of uh, your podcasts as well with, with me. It was 2018, 2017 with Evex, a while ago, when, when we were new to um, setting up our businesses. And both of us um, had launched our, our own businesses. She was in the tech space, uh, obviously I was in the food and drinks business. And um, we both were kind of going through something similar at the same time. So we were both going through breakups, which then meant, I guess, it helped us to bond slightly. Um, And also because she had uh, the same experience of um, actually being motivated and getting into a routine. So it was really great that we would say, right, we're both getting into the office at this time. And if I have a question which I I needed answering, I could go to her for support. So um, she was sort of my work wifey or whatever you want to call it uh, during that time the equivalent of what you have in in the corporate space and um yeah she she was brilliant 
And to the Sarahs, talk to me about your tribes. Have you have you built them? Did you need one? Who who did you have? Who had your back? Yeah, I, I can go first. Um, I um, I actually my group of friends. They all all I mean all of them. Some of them have all started their own business. So. You know, there's one in fashion that runs her own accessories and handbag line. There's one that's actually revolutionizing the way that football and uh, the football world is. And she's, you know, a woman in football, which is pretty unique as well. Um, And, you know, we all really support one another. Um, Even, you know, just to bat and I, oh, I've I've got this talk. Can you give me some pointers? You know, we, we really have a good... A support system between us um, and it's just nice and inspiring to see um, your friends that you've kind of grown up with or been around for so long they're also kind of paving the way and you know doing things for themselves and creating their own businesses and and you know being a success I suppose um, um, from my point of view as well you know I, I have um built a new tribe and turned it into a business. So, um, you know, finding finding women and men who um, had the financial capacity and also some um, professional expertise. And so they could be good investors and helping them on that journey, the journey that I'd made and helping them avoid some of the mistakes I'd made and, and, and kind of building a, a community out of them. So, you know, my, my business is my tribe. Um, but when I'm speaking to female founders, I think, you know, having a tribe, the peer mentoring thing is huge. Um, I think it's also important if you can to have a, a co-founder in the business, somebody to share the strain with. If you get sick, you know, there's somebody who's, uh, who's able to kind of keep things going while, while you're out of action. Um, but I think to have people outside of your business that you can share experience with is vitally vitally important as well you know there's sometimes you've got to act strong for your team all the time so you can't always talk about these things in front of the people who work in your business so so that outside support is just is 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 huge really important and also that group of people will hold you hold you accountable you know you can say I'm going to do this and then they will ask well did you do that so you know that's important in terms of spurring you on to be even more ambitious than than you might be on your own just to add to your point as well about having a co-founder um obviously as a woman you know there is that elephant in the room that maybe one day we want to have a family or you know during pregnancy I I I gave birth to my son uh, on the end of 2019 and during that time we were raising funds and going to meetings and pitching and you know it was kind of the elephant in the room and I'm fortunate enough to have a co-founder and have it you know have my father there as a support as well so I think it is really important and if if there is someone that you can partner up with um, there is a huge value in that because Um, you know I have a friend who's actually uh, doing it by herself she's in the beauty industry and she's starting her own her own her own business and she is pregnant and she you know she doesn't have anybody that she can turn to and be like oh my gosh actually I don't feel like being going to this meeting today can you do it and she's actually been advised to kind of put it on hold because she doesn't have that um, until after she's you know able to return successfully um, and give more dedicated more of her time to it I suppose I think it's a it's a really important topic. There are lots of stories floating around of women who've been um, refused funding because they're they're pregnant or they've got families or even just being asked questions about their plans, which are 
you know, a, ma- a man would never get. And I think, you know, from an investor's perspective, I think, I, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're all, well, we're mainly women, so we're quite sensitive to the issue. The, the questions don't come up, but if we were to see a founder that was heavily pregnant, we would want to understand what networks they have around them, you know, not just in the business, but at home so that, you know, actually they can take time off when they, when they need to. So I think, you know, it, it is possible and there are loads of good examples of women raising money when they're pregnant and clearly you did, but, you know, you've just got to be, you, it's again about having a plan and convincing people that actually it's a, it's a strength to the business, an asset to the business, not a weakness at all, um, you're, that their money is going to be in safe hands with you. Yeah, I mean, I would just address it kind of head on and be like, yep, I'm pregnant, this is the plan. So I wouldn't even kind of give them the option to be like, so what are you going to do when you have this baby? You know, so just kind of going in with a, this is the plan and taking action from before it even becomes a topic and if you come across men you know male investors or any investors frankly women too for whom it's a problem then they're not the right investors for you because they don't believe in you clearly so um move on (laughs) i love that we're talking about this though because it is a really difficult topic um because obviously it is a big change for 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 women and men when when a baby comes into the world and that becomes their priority and you have to be able to talk about it in a way that 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 kind of protects everyone's interests understanding that it's a huge new responsibility actually um the investment that i had declined um one of the big reasons for that was i was sat in the room with my co-founder and Um, So the entirety of the meeting was addressed at my co-founder, but the only point in which I was acknowledged in the room was to ask about my future. And it wasn't necessarily directly asking about, are you planning on having children or all of that? But I could sort of get that feeling and that vibe that actually that's what they were getting to. And I was thinking, well, how come you're not asking about my co-founder's future? Um, And... I think yeah, that's where my kind of gut said to me, it just isn't right. It doesn't feel right. Sorry, sorry to jump in, but just unbelievable that, you know, they, they don't find you interesting in the business. So they kind of think you're an accessory, but somehow when it comes to, you might have plans for a family in the future, then suddenly you're important. It's uh... I might just direct a kind of, I don't want to pry because honestly, it's no one's business, whether you want to have kids, whether you've got kids, you know, you're, you're, if you're in business, it's about your business and about your plans for your business. But I am interested to know, for example, if it's come up um, and if it's something that has ever been a factor in your planning, um, either Sarah Turner or Rashina Shah, either of you kind of come up against that as something that you look at either in your present or your future as a barrier um it's it's not really been um such a i guess focus for me um i think for me it's um i i know that i want to take the business to a point where we exit and um, i've got in my mind when i see that exit point happening so um for me if i end up wanting to have children before that that happens um, I think I would have built the business to a point where people know that I've got enough skin in the game to actually want to continue it. And I've put in enough time and effort into the business to not just give it up at the point when I then have children. Um, so it's it's never really been something that's crossed my mind in terms of the, the planning and uh, the future of the business, because I already see an end point and an exit plan for the business, which hopefully and probably will come before that point that I'm ready and uh, wanting to have children. 
Um, but I guess it has come up in conversations with investors and not in such a way that's directly linked to are you going to have children? It's not so direct, but it is sort of like, what's your plans for the future? And I have addressed it. And again, it's all around reassuring them to show them that actually I do have an exit plan and I do have a lot of um, interest in this business and I've got shares in the business. Um, it is essentially my savings. It's all put into the business. So I um, I know that I'm not just going to give this up at, um, at any point. So yeah, I think it's just showing showing investors that and um, making them feel confident that I, I believe in the business and that nothing's going to hinder that. Can I just make um, um, a wider point as well about, you know, culturally, we've got to think a lot smarter about this because having a family isn't something that just affects women it affects it affects most adults doesn't it male and female and yes the the woman has to carry the baby but you know i think we've you know we're all we're all growing businesses that are going to be employing men and women so we've got to kind of embed it in the culture of those businesses so that it works for everybody and we can offer that flexibility not just for ourselves as founders but for our 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 teammates yeah that's a really good point Sarah thank you and it is you know I'm even sweating asking these questions it is really hard to talk about this kind of stuff without feeling like it's awkward or you're prying I don't know how it must feel when (laughs) it's you in the hot seat having them directed at you or having to try and plan for the future and that you you know you can't you don't even know 100% I didn't know when I would have kids I think it was just to Sarah Turner's point around creating a culture and an atmosphere within your company company that appeals to both uh, male and female so putting for instance I I'm the only woman in my company at the moment um, so I am paving the way I would like to make it more appealing for for women to start working with us as we grow um, it's something that's definitely embedded in me that I would like to ensure that wherever we end up um, we allow for um, families and or maybe there's a childcare or, you know, places even when you're breastfeeding that you can go and have like a special kind of room and it's not a tiny little toilet in the back, you know, just having these things that you wouldn't normally think about um, in a company. Um, I, I, that's something that I've kind of tasked myself with is trying to make it more appealing for women, um, especially in the tech industry. It is very male dominated. So it, it's something that's kind of an afterthought for a lot of companies, but something that I definitely want to, to start making um paving the way for and this 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 is why you need more women at the top because then when you've got women at the top they make these decisions that are more inclusive for other women that might need that breastfeeding room not might not want to kind of sit and express in their car or whatever it's actually from 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 the top down when you have women making the decisions and women in power which is brings us right back to why we're having this podcast <laughs> about International Women's Day. So thank you, Sarah. And actually, there's a there's a COVID point as well, because, you know, that has disrupted the whole model of people going to work every day to a place. We can rethink that flexibly. So it works around people's people's lives, what, whatever it is they want to to do, whether it's family or even, you know, looking after older, older people in their their families as well. Absolutely. And I think if there's also a point to be made about 
kind of cultural change. Uh, I read a lot about how women do more domestic duties. Um, or, um, I mean, it's hard to make generalizations, but they, but more women seem to be doing more around the house and more caring duties, whether that is elderly parents, remembering to send the birthday cards to the extended friends and family, all of that stuff, the shopping, a lot of that seems to be covered by women. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that changes over time if it if it changes well we are very able at uh, multitasking i think that's one thing that i've learned is being a founder of a business you have to be an extraordinary multitasker <laughs> yeah i i call that the um, the cognitive load is kind of you know thinking ahead on behalf of the whole family and household and the the business but i think um yeah just to to add to what sarah's saying i think that those those female skills around empathy and communication and being able to handle lots of different things at once um are, are huge assets in 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 running a business especially the the i i don't know about you but for women tend to be a lot more intuitive than men. They're a lot more in tune, maybe that's generalizing a bit too much, but they they do tend to be more in tune with that, that gut feeling and going with their gut. And, you know, just as Rashina probably turned down her the investment from the VC fund because of a gut feeling, I think we listen to it a lot more. Um, even some of the men in my company, they come to me and they're like, Sarah, what's your gut telling us, because, telling you? Because they, they want to know because I've actually based decisions off of that in the past. And if I haven't listened, that's when I kick myself down the line because I'm like, oh, I should have listened to my gut. And I think women tend to be a lot more intuitive. I suppose the message here is that, you know, there may be some systemic barriers, but they are slowly crumbling away, helped along by people like Sarah Turner and the wonderful Angel Academy. And and it's it's never been a better time to be a woman. And women have all the skills, um, obviously all the skills uh, to, to run successful businesses and to, to, to build the, the, the unicorns of the future if they want to. Um, I think that's probably a good place to stop. Thank you all for joining me today. You've all been absolutely brilliant. And I think we've had so many practical insights on on pitching, raising investment, all the routes open to you, but also on all the things that kind of move around that when it comes to being a successful female entrepreneur. So thank you all very much. Thank you for having us. Great questions, very mm. thoughtful. Thank you to everyone who tuned in today. To be clear, great entrepreneurs, both female and male should be celebrated and supported every day. That's very much the ethos at Sage. But it was really exciting to be able to mark International Women's Day with this extended episode and hear from these remarkable women. Please let us know what you thought of the debate on Twitter at Sage UK using the hashtag SoundAdvicePodcast. To find out more about pitching for investment and some of the other topics we covered on today's show, check out the show notes and lots of other useful content at sage.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our Sage Advice newsletter. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our regular format. See you soon for more sound advice.